This is Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me. I'm Alex Bennett. We're going to title this chapter, 20,000 People in Search of a City, but we'll get to that city in just a few moments. I want to backtrack a little bit. You know, I was telling you in the last uh, chapter about KTIM in San Rafael and how I kind of learned my craft there because there were so many different things that I had to do at uh, KTIM in San Rafael. Uh, Man on the street broadcasts, uh, music shows, uh, and so on. And one of the other things I managed to do was to do my first interviews that I ever did. And people say to me, well, Alex, who was the first person you ever interviewed? And they asked me that because, uh, you know, and I have to, I take this seriously. uh, People call me a pretty damn good interviewer. And so they all want to know the first person I interviewed. And they also say, you know, the other question is always, who was the most interesting person you interviewed? And that will come later on down the line. But my first interview may have been also one of the most interesting. He was an actor who was living in Marin County after he had gotten a great deal of notoriety. He got a great deal of notoriety not for what uh, he should have gotten notoriety for, which was being a motion picture actor, but because of something else altogether. His name was Sterling Hayden. Now, if the name doesn't ring a bell to some of you, to others, a lot of people will go, oh, Sterling Hayden, of course. Sterling Hayden uh, did a lot of really, like, mediocre films for many, many years. It was signed to certain studios. I can't remember which ones. I think, like, RKO or one of those. And uh, really wasn't that great an actor. In fact, when I interviewed him, he even said to me, you know, I'm not really an actor. You know, I'm, I'm a reactor. Uh, uh, he had uh, uh, he had not yet gone on to the fame oddly enough, that you know him for. Uh, he was in Dr. Strangelove as uh, Jack Ripper, all right? And uh, he then later on uh, was in The Godfather. Uh, he played the police captain uh, who gets killed by Michael Corleone, remember? He grabs his, his, his throat and I guess he gets shot in the throat. Anyway. He went on to fame with that later on. At this point, his career was, it was you know, he was just an actor. He did, he did A pictures that were almost B pictures, all right? And, but what he got famous for was he was having a big fight with his ex-wife over the custody of the children. And he wanted to take his children to uh, Tahiti, where he had a boat called The Wanderer. And he wanted to take these kids out on this boat and give them the vacation of a lifetime. And the wife wouldn't let him. So one day, he picked up and took the kids with him. And he went out to the South Seas. Well, this made all the newspapers. The wife was yelling and screaming. The police were going to arrest him the minute he got back. Uh, It was a big, big story of the day. And in fact, he later went on to write a book called The Wanderer, all about that incident and about how he loved boating and how he loved having a boat and that he would rather live on a boat than live anywhere else. Well, at this point, he was living at a, an old, what can I call it? It was almost an old uh, uh, railway station where there wasn't a railroad anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Right near the shore in Tiburon. And he was literally in the news 
every day about this whole thing. And then he came back and they arrested him and he went to court and he didn't go to jail, but he got a fine or something like that. I can't, I can't remember the whole story. I, if you want to go look it up, but I, for some reason thought, I'll give him a call and see if he'll do an interview with me. Now, you know, I mean, that's eh, kind of a gutsy thing to say. I wonder if this guy's going to do an interview with me. And for some odd reason, he said, yeah, kid, come on down. <laughs> and that was how kind of how he sounded. You know, he kind of had that, that you know, you, you remember uh, Jack D. Ripper in, uh, in uh, um, uh, Dr. Strangelove? You remember the Godfather. He talked uh, like this. And he... Um, so we, uh, I went down to this uh, this house that was down in Tiburon. It was it wasn't a house. It was it was more like an office of sorts. And I remember he was living in it, but it was also his office. And it was where he at that time was writing the book, The Wanderer. And uh, I I interviewed him, and I I was it was really something for me because I had never done an interview in my life, and now I'm sitting there with somebody who does have some notoriety, and that. Most people want to hear what he has to say. And he told me all about the trip and about the kids and why he took the kids and all of that. And I went back to San Rafael uh, to the radio station and I uh, took the tape and I did a few little edits because I was not the best interviewer in the world at that point. Because, see, here's what happens when you first start interviewing. You don't become a great interviewer until you realize that you can't think of what the next question is going to be. In other words, a lot of people will start interviewing somebody and then they'll say, so how'd you get your start in show business? And then while the guy's giving the answer to the question, uh, the interviewer is constantly reeling in his brain, what's my next question going to be? I got to have another question because when he's through answering this one, I have to have another question. When really, and if you're going to grow up and be an interviewer, take this advice from the interviewer, the whole idea behind it is that you hold a conversation. You don't think of what the next question will be. If you listen to his answer, okay, or her answer, or their answer, you will know what the next question is going to be because it's going to be just like it would be in a normal average conversation. So if you're sitting there trying to figure out what it's going to be and you're not listening to the answer, you may be missing stuff that's important to asking the next question. So, you know, and plus an interview shouldn't be a series of questions. It should be a conversation. And I, I didn't know any of that back then. So when I came back and listened to this thing, of course, it was the most inexperienced interviewer you can possibly ever imagine. But I got some kudos for that. Uh, you know, it was, it, uh, I did okay. I did okay. The other guy that I got for an interview, and this was really strange, okay, was, uh, uh, I, it was the year of the 1960 election. You had Kennedy running for president, right? And um, he, he, was, he was going all around California and so on. And he was going to be, I think, in, in Petaluma, California, Kennedy. Um, so I figured, I want to get an interview with Jack Kennedy. But I asked, you know, went to the, the people who were handling all of that, and I said, can I get an interview with Jack Kennedy? Sure, kid, you can get an interview with Jack Kennedy. No, you can't get an interview with Jack Kennedy. And I said, well, then who do you have? And they say, well, 
we got Ted Kennedy. And at that time, you know, Ted Kennedy was the dumb brother. I mean, you had Jack, who was really sharp. You had Robert, who was probably sharper than Jack. And then you had this kind of doofus, dumb brother, Ted. So I interviewed him. Can I tell you what he talked about? I can't remember. It was done on the telephone, and it really wasn't much of anything. But it was an interview with Ted Kennedy, so when I put it down on the list of people I've interviewed, they go, you interviewed Ted Kennedy? By the way, never, ever interviewed him again in my entire life, okay? Just thought I'd pass that along to you. The one other incident that happened at KTIM in San Rafael that I that I can't that I I just thought about as we were as as I was talking here, um, you know I've always been against the death penalty, and we can get into that on some future uh, chapter, but I've always been against the death penalty uh, because it it just never made sense to me uh, that you tell people they shouldn't do something like kill people and then you turn around and kill them yourself. Uh, it, it never made much sense, and I always thought of it as being rather barbaric. And back in the 50s, the late 50s, it was even more barbaric because people were getting executed not for murdering people. Uh, in this case, there was a guy named Carol Chessman. And Carol Chessman, they convicted him for being the red light bandit. And what he had done is they say that he had uh, raped a woman. And they gave him the death penalty. Now, how they give him the death penalty? Well, back then, you know, Lindbergh's baby got stolen and killed and everything. So around the country, states started enacting anti-kidnapping laws, okay? So what the red light bandit supposedly did is he took this woman and he took her out of his car, out of her car, and took her over to his car where he raped her. Okay, and Carol Chessman to the end said it wasn't him. He did not do that, okay? He was not a rapist. And the reason they called him the red light bandit was because he would stop a car by putting a red handkerchief on one of those lights. Remember those old lights that you can move them around from the inside so you could see, you know, lamp posts and light, you know, post boxes and things like that? Well, he would put a red light on, a red handkerchief on that it would look like a cop car anyway the woman was moved from about 20 feet from one car to another and the state of california said that was kidnapping and the drop dead uh penalty for kidnapping back in those days yes was death so he was sentenced to death in the gas chamber in san quentin and he'd been going for years with appeals and he'd written several books uh, he'd become a well-known author, and uh, uh, his works were considered very important on the subject of the death penalty. And um, he was going to be, he, they had had many execution dates set, and this was a time when there was an execution date set yet once again. And he had kind of run out of his appeals. So they were appealing at the last minute to the Supreme Court, and he had always kind of gotten out of it every other time, but it was getting to look a little hinky this time. So I just took my little recorder, tape recorder out, and in those days, I can't even remember what it was. It was called a Mohawk, and it wasn't like any tape recorder you've ever seen before, but my boss loved this thing. And I took the Mohawk, 
And I went out to San Quentin that night. And here are all these people in front of San Quentin, uh, you know, literally um, uh, uh, protesting uh, what might happen the next morning. At, traditionally, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. And um, here was the greatest interview of my life. Uh, Marlon Brando was there protesting it. Uh, I mean, it was a cause celebre, Carol Chessman. And, and he was, uh, he was uh, um, just absolutely just uh, uh, protesting the hell out of it. You know, he was out there cheering and doing all of that. So finally, it kind of, he kind of settled down a little bit, and they saw him coming my way. And I took out my little microphone, and I got my mohawk going, right? And I, I put the microphone in front of him, and I say to him, uh, Mr. Brando, uh, could I ask you a question? And he looked at me and said, no, and kept walking. <laughs> so that was my, my big interview with, with uh, Marlon Brando, and I, I, I will never forget it. And, and I always kind of thought of Marlon just in that way. And he didn't, he said no, like Marlon Brando, you know, like a little no. Uh, and it was, uh, it, but it was quite a night that night. And a lot of people were protesting like crazy. I went up on a hillside and with my little microphone, I asked some people, what are you doing here? And they said, oh, we're here to see the whole thing, you know, what's happening here. And I said, uh, well, what do you think about uh, this case? And they said, well, he robbed somebody and he raped him. So I said, we should rob and rape him and let him go. And that, uh, that I couldn't broadcast because back then that was a little too racy. Okay. But anyway, those, those were the moments that I had that, that, uh, that, you know, I didn't mention in the last chapter. And I wanted to make sure that I talked about them because they were important. My first interview, uh, Ted Kennedy and... Marlon Brando, uh, just an amazing interview. I don't know what my follow-up question was. Anyway, so, you know, KTIM was a great thing for me. Uh, it was, uh, uh, it taught me the basics of the business, but I was anxious to go somewhere else and continue the business. And um, sometimes you have to take a step backward and take a step forward. And as I said in the last chapter, I got to know a guy named Ted Randall. Ted Randall was an early broadcaster in San Francisco. The, the first top 40 station in San Francisco was KOBY, and he was on KOBY, and I think he was also the program director, if I'm not mistaken. But by the time I met up with him and I sought him out, he was what they called a radio consultant. Now, today, radio consultants are different. Radio consultants come in and they say, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. In those days, he came into a station, uh, like the one I finally wound up at, and he would supply them with the records every week that were going to be played if they were a top 40 station. or if they, He did classical music, too. He would send them classical music records. He got all the records and sent them to you. Okay, The whole thing was a package. And he also had pr somebody who made up promos and uh, um, uh, station breaks and things like that, and the imagers, as we call them, for the programs. And so I uh, went to him and said, D do you have anywhere that I could go, you know, because I would really like to take this further. And he said, well, I need somebody 
who can do some uh, radio images for me. And I, I had some promos and stuff I had done, and he kind of liked them. And he said, I've got a station in Klamath Falls, Oregon. I said, where? He said, Klamath Falls, Oregon. Now, the only thing I ever knew about Klamath Falls, Oregon, was my father mentioned it upon occasion. Because what would happen is if you were playing in Portland, right, or, uh, or Seattle, okay, um, and you were going to go play your next, your next big gig was going to be San Francisco. They would stop overnight in Klamath Falls, Oregon. And if they were going to stop overnight in Klamath Falls, Oregon, well, why not play a gig? And so some of the biggest bands, some of the biggest performers actually played this little town, which I once called a town of 20,000 people looking for a city. Um, but I took the job, and I said I would take it, and I went to KLAD in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Uh, really a strange kind of situation. To begin with, let me describe Klamath Falls, Oregon for you. In 1920, somebody decided that it was just too full of trees, so they cut down every tree in town. So in the middle of this wonderful, beautiful forestation, in that part of the world, this is Oregon, right? Right over the, right on the other side of the California border, all right? On the other side of Mount Shasta, which looms largely in this story, okay? Um, they decided that they didn't like the trees, and there's like this big bald spot in the middle, and it's called Klamath Falls. And it was 20,000 people not knowing exactly what they were doing there in the first place. And I sometimes question the same thing, like, is this the best my career is going to get? But I not only had the job there, but I also had the job of doing some promos and things like that for Ted Randall and for all the stations that he, um, you know, he serviced. So uh, it, it wasn't the worst thing in the world. And I had to shift playing music. It was a top 40 station. And the station now was, this is really something, was in the middle of a train yard, okay? It was an old, I guess, logging uh, office, business office, uh, for, and it was right there by the railroad because they would, you know, do their business with the trains and everything. And it was in the middle of this big kind of like railroad yard. So that sometimes when I went to work, it took me like a half hour, and it was only like, you know, a half a mile away because I had to go to, a, a you know, um, a, an intersection, and there was a, a train going by. And then I would go to another intersection, and there was a train just sitting there. And then I'd go to another intersection, uh, you know, uh, where there was a railroad uh, uh, line, and, and I would wait there. And finally, uh, you know, I'd wait for a while. And just on the other side was this cabin, was this office. This, I remember it was made out of wood, uh, and, and uh, this office, which had been turned into a radio station. And many times I was going to be late for work because this train wasn't moving. It was just sitting there because it is a railroad yard after all. Why should it move? I remember one time I almost thought of getting, you know, leaving the car on the other side and uh, going under the train. But I, you know, I'm a coward, and I thought if I go under the train, that thing's gonna, that thing's gonna run me over. So I, uh, um, uh, we used to work at this station, and and I would do a show, and 
every time a train would go by, sometimes they would go by at a fairly decent clip, you know, right by the station, and they knew it was a radio station, so they would blast their horn. So I might be in the middle of a newscast, you know, and all of a sudden, I just, you know, it was, it was not the place, it was not the best place to put a radio station. There was another guy in town who owned a radio station, and it was on the top of a mountain. That was a little smarter, except when it got really snowy, as it had its want to do in Klamath Falls, Oregon, if you worked at that radio station, it was hell getting to work because you had to go up a hill with snow. So anyway, uh, the KLAD in uh, Klamath Falls, Oregon, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not learning a lot, okay, but I'm doing a lot. You know, I'm doing four-hour music shifts. And um, so I'm learning the, uh, what could I call it, the, 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 the torture that is doing radio as well. But I, at one point, I had this friend who lived in Dunsmuir, California, which is right on the other side of the uh, state line and around, you see, there's Mount Shasta is this big, huge, towering, wonderful mountain. Uh, so wonderful, it winds up on the, uh, they have Shasta Soda, and there's a picture of Mount Shasta on it. And, and there are a lot of stories about Mount Shasta, by the way. Um, there is a, uh, a cult up there, uh, and I'm trying to remember what their name was now. And they believed that there were glass domes on Mount Shasta. And um, these people also believed that there was a black panther. <laughs> this is this is this cult that's up. I think they're still up there. Um, a, 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 a black panther, and the black panther uh, is supposed to, at some point, have sex with one of their women. And if he does have sex with one of their women, Christ will be reborn on earth. And I, I wish I could, uh, uh, I, they were called the Iams. That was it. Um, uh, the, the, I, I Am Society. And I think they're still up there, still believing that that Black Panther is going to, you know, show up. I often wanted to go get an old stuffed Black Panther, show up in, my, in, in Shasta City, which is where their headquarters are, with this dead um, uh, Black Panther, albeit stuffed, and go, look what I just killed. But anyway, um, that, that isn't the main story I have here. So I had this friend, he owned a movie theater in Dunsmuir called the Dunsmuir Theater. And he taught me how to be a projectionist there. I learned, I didn't do it much, but I learned how to, you know, you wait for the little dots to come up and then 10 seconds later you start the machine. And you, But he had this theater. And so we were talking one day. And he says, you know, the, the race is coming up. The big race is coming up. And I said, what, what big race? They said, they have a race every year to the top of Mount Shasta. So I went, wow, that's incredible. You, they said, he said, you should see these guys. They look like, you know, they're just gigantic and beefy. And uh, uh, it's really something to watch these guys. Uh, and he said, they, go to, they race to the top of the mountain. I said, how long does it take them? And the, and the mountain's about... What, 14,000 feet in elevation, maybe a little more? And um, he said, eh, it's about three hours back and forth. And I'm going, 
I'm thinking about this. I go back, and uh, there was another disc jockey on the radio station. I said, I got an idea. Why don't you I, and I uh, start a, uh, a little, like, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, fight with each other and um, have kind of a little uh, thing going here, and then I will challenge you to a race to the top of Mount Shasta. So he said, really? I said, yeah. So he says, okay, we'll do it. So we go on the air. We start promoting this. So, you know, uh, are you chicken? You won't go to the top of Mount Shasta with me. Well, I will race you to the top of Mount Shasta. And we started this whole big thing going on the radio station. Mind you, this old cheap-ass radio station, nobody's probably even paying attention. But we're, we're, we're doing, I'm doing my first big promotion. I'm going to have a race to the top of Mount Shasta. So the week before we're supposed to do it, I go back to Dunsmere, and uh, my friend has gotten a guy who has done the race before, and um, he uh, we start we start talking, and I say to him, uh, so I tell him what I'm going to do, and he said, uh, why? And I said, well, because we're doing this promotion for the radio station. And I and this guy, I think his name was Rocky, if I remember correctly. That was the name he used on the air. Uh, we're going we're gonna to race to the top of Mount Shasta. And he said, did you leave anything up there? And I said, no. He said, you've seen these guys who race to the top of Mount Shasta. You don't look anything like that. He said, you're going to be out of breath before you get halfway to the top. Well, there's nothing we can do to, to, to stop this whole promotion. So we decide we will just give it our best. And on the morning of the race, we get up really early, like 6 o'clock in the morning, because that's when the ski uh, lift goes, because we're not going to start at the ferry bottom. We're going to start at the top of the ski lift. We take the ski lift to the top. We are now climbing this mountain. I swear to you folks, if I ever came close to getting killed in my life, it was this race to the top of Mount Shasta. To begin with, Mount Shasta is this mountain. It's, as I said, about 14,000, I think, 300 feet tall, right? And it is literally one rock on top of another. You know, it's not like this solid granite thing and you just, you know, climb it like in the Alps or what. No, this is like one rock on top of another. So that as you go two feet ahead, you slide back one, all right? And this is, that's par only part of it. The other part of it is you're suddenly standing there and you look ahead and there is this, and I wouldn't even say a boulder. It could just be a large rock suddenly coming down the mountain and it's heading, and you, you can't move because, okay, if I, if I move over there, it might move over there. So I got to stay where I am until it's really close and then dodge it. So all day long, we are dodging boulders coming down off of this mountain. And we're climbing it, uh, you know, one, uh, one step at a time, going back two steps. I mean, it was amazing. But finally, about, I guess, th 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we get to um, a place called the Red Banks, which was this last lap. There's a hole in the mountain, kind of this last lap you take to get to the top. I only had 300 feet to go, but the guy who was helping us with this whole thing said, we better head back. I said, why? It's only 300 feet. We'll make it to the top. He said, do you know how long it's going to take you to do that 300 feet? 
it's going to take you about five hours. He said, because if you think that the shale is loose here, you've, you ain't seen nothing yet. So you're going to have to turn around and go back. So um, we turned around, and I remember we were sitting on top of the mountain, kind of on a, not on the very top of the mountain, but on the side of it. And I'm looking down, and I mean, I'm, the clouds are below me, okay? That's how high I've gone. This is probably the most, this is the most uh, uh, exercise I think I've ever had in my life, all right? And uh, I was a smoker in those days, and I hadn't smoked all the way up, so I figured if I'm going back down, I need to smoke, and I take out a cigarette. And a guy, the guy who's leading us says, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I said, why? He said, I just wouldn't. I said, just one puff, one or two puffs, what can it hurt? We were at about 14,000 feet, okay? It's hard. The air there is very thin. I didn't realize you take a puff off a cigarette, you get higher than a kite. I mean, I don't think I've gotten higher on pot. I suddenly am lightheaded. And they have to, like, help me down the mountain. Now, mind you, going down the mountain was very fast. We had to run because the sun was coming down, and we wanted to make it before, before the sun went out down completely. But it, for at least the first 20, 30 minutes of that run down the hill, I was woozy, man, from that one cigarette. And you got to be careful because there are also glaciers on the mountain. And if you fall between the mountain and the glacier, you'll come out the other end about uh, 10 years later. M most dangerous, stupid thing I ever did, but I did it in Klamath Falls, Oregon. And that was pretty much it. You know, nothing exciting happened there. I always like to tell the story about how they had this big room in the, uh, in the radio station where they kept all the records they didn't play and they just threw them in there. You know, they opened the door, throw them in there. And, and I like to having records. I like to saving records. I like collecting them. So I would sit there in this room and I would go through these 45s. And I go, oh, that looks good. I'll take that one. That one doesn't look good. Nah, I don't like Pat Boone. And I remember one that I saw. And it was right in front of me. I can still see it to this very day. It was a promotional copy on Sun Records of a new guy in the business named Elvis Presley singing Mystery Train. And I went, who the fuck wants that? And I threw it away. If I had that today, it would be worth about $25,000. I still remember it. It's still, you know, I, I'm, forget, I'm forgetting a lot of things about that time, but that I didn't forget. So that was my time in the town that was 20,000 people looking for a city. And it was to, time to go on, go on to other adventures and other radio stations as I spent my life in the passing lane. This is my audio biography. I'm Alex Bennett.